Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group, Realtor Hi, uh, Road to Growth listeners. Uh, today I have Rick Mayo. He is the founder and CEO of the Alloy Personal Training Franchise System. Oh, that's a mouthful. Damn. Isn't it? Got all out. You did good. You did good. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, thank you for, for being here, Rick. Um, I know, and we're going to get into your journey. We're going to dive deeper in this. I mean, there, I mean, there's a lot of trainers out there that probably look for something more. I mean, cause you can only just do what you do. And then you think about, okay, how can I expand? How can I grow? I mean, what? and I know we're going to get into it. Tell us a little about your, your <laughs> franchise system first, and then we'll dive into your story. Sure. So, I mean, yeah, the story will have a lot to do with how we ended up in franchising, right? It's sort of like as we continue to stack more skills, we just looked for an opportunity, right, channel that met our skill set. So, um, you know, at this point in time, we're full on franchising. So, I mean, a lot of people, you know, ask me, like, what does that mean? It's like, well, you've probably heard of Orange Theory or Gold's Gym or Anytime Fitness, you know, it's like those are all big brands that we've worked with intimately in the past when we were doing more of a consulting and licensing arm of what we do. But eventually, like, instead of being the special sauce in everyone else's franchise, you know, the idea is like, well, let's just, if we're going to do all this work, uh, let's do it for ourselves, right? So let's do our own franchise. And it's a great vehicle for success for our franchisees. So it's based on personal training, which is a little bit underserved right now. If you look at most fitness, it's class-based, everything from CrossFit to cycling to spinning to, and I, I know those are vastly different if you're a consumer of fitness, but if you're just a, someone that's sitting on the couch that wants to start working out, it's 20 people getting sweaty through your lens, right? And the price points are similar. You know, I think the national average for class-based concepts is like $129 a month. So they all kind of fit into that $100 to $149 category now. And so for us, um, we've always done well on the other end of the spectrum of boutique fitness, which is, is personal training. You know, the first 10 years of our business, we serviced it as a one-on-one, -on -one, but it was too expensive for the consumer ultimately, and it wasn't very scalable as a business model. So we just figured out a way to service it in a small group setting with technology to make a communication tool so the coach has all the info and everything they need on each individual and a templated systematic way to apply you know personal training to people at scale which brings the price down for the consumer so more folks can afford it and it makes a much better scalable business model for the business owner themselves and so that's that's what we're taking to markets 30 years of experience in personal training and you know 15 years with over 2,000 clubs licensed worldwide that gives you a pretty good, interesting way to approach franchising. Whereas a lot of folks are like, I got a kick-ass gym, you know, I'm killing it in this market, should I franchise? I'm like, definitely open some more corporate locations in some other markets, right? Stress test it. So we had this vehicle called licensing that gave us the opportunity to do that. So yeah, that's where we are let, now. Uh, let me let me get it straight that, so you're, you're kind of a, a mix, a hybrid between the classes and the personal training the trainer has kind of a information on each of the people in the class. And so they're working with the group yet kind of have the focus for each of the individual roughly. Correct. Yeah. And quite honestly, like we joke about the, the class being like the C word in our environment. Like you never use the C word. It's so offensive and rude. Right. Because just like regular, <laughs> everybody knows that, but like that's that for us, that word is class. 
And the reason is, as you know, there's pricing anchors and service anchors that go along with descriptions of anything, right? So for us, class is like something you can get for free at the YMCA. They might do free classes at the park, at the rec center, you know, at the senior center or something. So for us, we call them sessions, which is more in line with personal training. But essentially, you're right. It's six clients to one coach. Coach comes in. We have an app built that has out of club, you know, uh, functions. But the in club functions are imagine like it populates this iPad with six tiles of everyone that's in your group, right? And it tells you like, here's Vinny, here's his level of fitness, here's his do's and his don'ts, our goals and injuries. And then we've got a program and we just marry the two together. So it makes a very scalable system for a franchisee. They don't have to find coaches that are team players, look the part, you know, very engaging and outgoing and also happen to be like, you know, master's degree in exercise science or something like that. Like you don't have to have all that. We've got all that stuff handled, which is the beauty of a franchise ultimately. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I've, I've, yeah, never, never heard of that. And that sounds like a great kind of a, a mix match. Now let's walk us through, I guess, where did you start out? Were you always into fitness at a young age, athlete? Where were you, Rick? Yeah. I mean, for the most part, I think, uh, you know, you start working out for, for athletics. So I played football, I did a little boxing. And so for me, you know, those were the two sports that I would train for. Um, and I can remember like my, I think my dad, he bought our first weight set when I was probably like 12 and it was like the old plastic covered cement weights with the tiny little, you know, collars on them. And, but man, we went out there and had this big chart that came with it. And we hung it on the wall and did like every exercise on the chart. Most of them were ridiculous anyway, but just being so sore, you know, we couldn't move for weeks, but you know, eventually, and this happens to a lot of guys in the industry that start from the technical side of it, which is kind of where I started which is you're training for a sport and then you actually fall in love with the training. And when you figure out that you're like a you're mediocre athlete, you're probably not going anywhere with that. It's like, well, you, you really enjoyed the training for it, right? You really enjoyed the strength training to get there. And that's the same path I took. So, uh, you know, was majoring in exercise science in college. And by the time I got to my junior year, everybody that was in my major wanted to do what I was already doing, which is I was personal training people to pay my way through school. And I was going to different gyms, going into people's homes. I mean, this is 91. So, I mean, no one even knew what a personal trainer was. Like if, if, a, if a lady told her friends at the tennis club that she had a personal trainer, it was like, it raised eyebrows, right? It was like, Ooh, you know, like that's what a trainer was back then. No one really knew. So we were sort of blazing a new path at the time. And then eventually instead of jumping around everywhere and I had met enough friends in the industry where I thought, you know, it'd be cool if we opened a small space, and put four walls around this experience, create a customer experience around this service that I'm bouncing all over town trying to do. Um, it would let me stay in one spot and it would provide a better experience for the customer because it would all be, we could build the whole thing, like the whole experience around this high, high level service. So we did that, we opened in 92 and I just brought in buddies of mine or whatnot um, to become coaches. And yeah, it was just a labor of love at the time. And I had no idea it would evolve into an industry and eventually a full on career for your first clients right the first clients you're working with before you actually got your degree was it simply i mean word of mouth or was it hey hey uh rick you look fit over there i want to be like you can i what should i do is that kind of the conversation or how did that originally happen probably a little bit of both right i mean it starts out with i, I can remember like you know taking on my own marketing initiative and imagine this this day and age with how how paranoid everyone is about security probably as they should be but you know, you go up and back then there was nothing digital. So like you had these card holders for people's workout cards. And it was like this sort of table with this big cutout in the middle. And the cutout was essentially a file folder. 
and you could go through and, and pull people, you know, based on your name, you'd have your card filed and you'd look at it and you'd work out. So they already had that. And I think they, the clubs, the few clubs that I was associated with had at the time an exercise physiologist. They would do like blood work and, you know, they do these higher level things, but it didn't manifest itself into like programming or accountability. It was just like, here's a snapshot of your health and where you are. Um, so I can remember putting up a paper sign-up sheet, literally just like scotch tape, a sign-up sheet with lines on it saying, you know, one free personal training session. I had my name and phone number down there. And I said, if you're interested, put your name and phone number down and I'll reach out to you. And people just willingly put their name and number down. You imagine now, like, you know, some attractive young lady putting her name and phone number down while five creepy guys wait for her to walk away so they can run over there and snag them. I mean, it would just be different. But back then, it just wasn't a big deal. And quite honestly, you know, I mean, yeah, hate to even admit it. I think I had a flip phone at the time. It was probably the first one ever. It's as big as my laptop, you know, like that, that, you know, that kind of phone. So it just wasn't an issue. But that's the way we started it. It's just, hey, then you'd have to explain what does a personal trainer do? What do you charge? What are you going to do for me? It's like, well, I'm going to teach you how to exercise. I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to give you nutrition tips. And you had to sort of explain all of that. So, you know, that's that's kind of how we, we got the thing rolling. Um, what? And, and a little bit of like you had to be in shape. I mean, that really helped you sell it, obviously. Well, I mean, in, when you were getting going in the, the 90s, I, I think for the most part, that was still kind of most of the people that went to the gyms were, quote unquote, meatheads. I mean, buff already. I mean, it, it, the the dynamic, I, I remember actually traveling in Europe in the early 2000s and any kind of gym you wanted to go to was just basically fitness buffs. It had that kind of boxing gym smell. I mean, now you can, everything's clean. It's very, it's very different. Yes. And so. Yeah, hundred percent. It was the same way then for, for us. Now, I mean, we, our facility wasn't set up that way, but we yeah. knew what our customer avatar was and it wasn't the person that was going to go hang out in the dirty dumbbell area of a, of a gym that could give you staff, you know, which is kind of what a lot of the real hardcore gyms were like at the time. So, so at that time, did you know you wanted to make it for the, the every man, the every woman, or was it still kind of, you want more of an athlete kind of personality for your clientele when you originally started? How was that? No, honestly, we were just for, for anybody that could afford it. And okay. by default, if you, you know, if you think about it was actually more expensive back then, even than it is now. So we might have been doing like $40 an hour, you know, in 92 for a one hour personal training session. You know, shoot, we can do it for under $30 now just because it's a scalable model, right? So it was actually more expensive. So by default, because the price threshold was higher, it pushed our demographic a bit older, right? So we were mainly like mid-30s and up people that were gainfully employed, double income, no kids, or we'd even trend a bit older for people that had amassed enough wealth to pay, you know, at the time it's like seven, $800 a month. You know I mean? Some of the clients that came through our facility early on, you know, we're in Atlanta, which is like the R and B capital of the world. So it's like Usher, LA Reed, Pebbles, who's an old like R and B artist who was like dating LA Reed, Madonna. I mean, like these are the kind of clients we had. We used to have like, we called it the quarterback wives club because all the Falcons players came in, all their wives came in. And so that was our crowd at the time, but it was just basically all the cool kids. Like, what are the cool kids doing? And it was so new and cutting edge and no one knew what it was. That's why for the first two or three years, that's all we did. And then eventually it was like, all right, it became an industry, certification bodies became a thing. Um, you know, we could actually make a run at a real business model here. Then it was like, all right, we need to scale this. And that means like we have a, we have a radius that we attract from probably about three miles based on traffic. So we have to be able to appeal to people in this three mile radius. And the cool kids that quite honestly didn't need us for fitness, they just liked doing it because it was different, right? 
they moved on to like ribbon yoga and God knows what. So for us, it was just more about, all right, well, like you said, the common person, yes, they just had to have an income threshold that could allow them to pay for personal training. But otherwise, it was just general fitness fat loss. With, with your background, I guess, in fitness and, and kind of growing up in, in fitness, where were you, was it learning, okay, this is not the right way to advertise, or this is not, we're, we're spending too much money here, was it taking classes, was it a mentor, where were you kind of growing your knowledge base? Yeah, a lot of it, I'd say for the first six years, so 92 through 98, um, it was just easy money. I mean, we were first to market, kind of hit the market at the right time. It's always good to be first, right? And by the time 98 rolled around, it was like, I mean, I hadn't done any continuing education. Why would I? I mean, we were just making bank, right? It was like, this is like candy from a baby, right? It's the easiest business ever. And then in 98, we had a pretty big hiccup. So I had made the mistake of like hiring 1099 contracted trainers, which you can't even do now in any way, shape or form anyway. It's basically illegal in, in almost all aspects. And so at the time it was not, but it was still a mistake because what I was doing is hiring experts. So they were running a business within my business. So like if somebody came in for fat loss, maybe Vinny, maybe you're my fat loss guy, right? And then I had like somebody that was good with athletes and this person's good with older people. And I would like sell them as such, but then in, in the way a 1099 works for your listeners, it's like you're essentially legally self-employed. So they would wear my shirt and they would service clients, but I was doing all the marketing and handing them over. And quite honestly, I was overpaying. So they were making a, you know, a large percentage of those dollars. So I was making good margin. Um, but what ended up happening in 98 is a couple of guys looked at me and they're like, man, you know, Rick's not that smart. We should just go open our own thing. And you know, at, now in hindsight, I look back, I'm like, well, I don't blame them. I probably would have had this come to the same assumption, right? And, uh, and a couple of guys left and it was pretty painful because it was like these, you know, two coaches that were holding down a good deal of our overall revenue, probably 35%. They left and then I had some other culture issues and I just wasn't being a great leader. So I think the first real learning experience I had was just from serious pain going from, and this is 1998, an average of 83 grand a month, which is a million dollar PT business down to $12,000 a month. And this happened in like three or four months. And then by then I'm married with two kids and a mortgage. It's like, oh, you know, it's like, I, you know, I either get out of this industry or pull up my bootstraps and figure out a better way to do business, right? But that was the turning point because that better way to do business meant, okay, I have to have employees. I have to own the customer experience all the way through. It's my customer, not theirs. I've got all the risk, right? I'm doing all the marketing. And so that means that I need to hire coaches and they need to be able to run my place. So I'm looking for a different, like literally a different type of team member now. And I need then systems to teach them how to do those things. So. What almost tanked my business in 1998 became the impetus for what built a very structured way, everything from how we say hello and goodbye to all the KPIs, the key performance indicators that we track, everything in the business. And then that became then our licensing opportunity, which is now our franchise opportunity, right? So you think about that one first hiccup that almost tanked us actually ended up being the biggest blessing in disguise. It was an opportunity to build something that's scalable, that is systematic, that isn't as dependent on the employees. It's like a system, right? Um, and it was, at the time it was seen, personal training was seen as almost like an art form, you know? So it's sort of like, well, you can't systemize that. It's like, well, you can, um, but we were just the first really to do it. And so I would say, you know, um, you know, all in all, that was probably our first big, you know, interruption in our business. And that's really my first big learning experience. Now, since then, it's like, like I said, if you want to level up, like if you're a personal trainer, you're listening to this and you want to level up, you've got to level up your skill set. So if you, if you don't know how to sell, that's 
like, and you probably know this, Vinny, if you just learn to sell, you could probably make money anywhere for the rest of your life. I mean, you could sell cars, you could sell this, you could sell, and selling fitness is not easy, right? You're selling someone on a lot of hard work with the potential future of success. It's not like they will drive out there to a new car that day. So it's a tough sell. If you can learn to sell fitness, you can probably sell anything. So you gotta learn to sell first and then you can level up, right? Then if you learn to produce your own leads, so you learn about marketing, right? So leads that give you um, opportunities to sell another skill set. So you keep stacking skills. And as you do that, you could move yourself up in the opportunity lanes as well, right? Because eventually if you're still operating as a trainer, but you're taking Harvard courses online, um, you know, you're probably at an eight skill set, but you're sitting in like a level two opportunity because you're still trading time for money. Not necessarily a bad thing if that's what you want to do. But if in fact, the question is, how do we end up, you know, progressing and ending up somewhere that maybe we are at this point, well, it took 30 years, first of all, so it's not like I was smarter, did it quickly, but um, some hard lessons and then realizing that, okay, each step along the way, I'm going to have to acquire and stack skills. And there are resources for that, whether it's online courses, I mean, mentorships, I've done them all, right? And some work better than others, but quite honestly, I never did anything that I didn't get something out of because I always looked at it as a student, not a critic. So it's like, what will I learn from this? And um, yeah, so now I take... Harvard courses online for fun, which if you had told me that 20 years ago, I'd be like, you're on crack, but <laughs> that's Did, what you have to do. Was there ever a moment that when you, when those two trainers left you, that you thought, you know what, maybe it'll be easier for me to downsize and go back to personal training and not have to worry about being a leader and focusing just on myself and my family and go that route. Was there ever a thought? hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think, if we're all honest, that's everyone's knee jerk is to shrink, right? Because that's where I started. I was very successful there. What I did is I, I, I moved myself into, a, again, another opportunity vertical without upskilling myself with the skills needed for that opportunity. So I was just lucky and in the right place at the right time. And, you know, again, it was like sometimes you eat the whole humble pie at once, which I did. And it was good for me because it forced me to then upskill myself. So, but my knee jerk, I think is natural, same as everyone else is like, I'll just get small again. And it, it, growth is so unbelievably uncomfortable. It's like you're constantly living with imposter syndrome. You're constantly feeling like you're just about caught up, but you don't quite know what you're doing yet. Well, welcome to the club. Like I will tell anybody out there that wants to grow, you better get really, you better get really comfortable with that just, you know, low level of discomfort all the time. That's what growth is. Essentially, it's messy, it's dirty, it has changed, it's going to test your personal resolve, you're going to reveal all kinds of things about yourself that you like, a lot of other things that you don't like that need to be fixed. And I've heard it described as entrepreneurship is like a self, you know, self-development journey masked as a business because that's what it is because essentially it lives or dies by your leadership ability, right? So 100% knee jerk was to get small again. But at least at that time, I thought, well, that seems silly. Like we had a thriving business. If I just, if it was in, if I just turned it here, right, as opposed to here, it would have been very successful. And we knew there was a market there. So I wasn't ready to, uh, to go back out on the floor, you know, 60 hours a week or something. How do you feel your, your fitness life has affected your entrepreneur life? I mean, because there's a lot of similarities like you talked about. When you're you have you have to basically do that extra rep, the extra two reps right there to get those actual gains. And so you're, I mean, how do you think that the workout has affected your entrepreneur mindset? Yeah, I think it's I think it's really good. I mean, I think there are plenty of people that are not fit that don't work out that are successful entrepreneurs. I would say it makes it much easier. I think we all know the health benefits and the brain 
focus benefits that you get from exercise. But for me, I would equate it to, um, in the book, uh, Great by Choice, which was Jim Collins' second book. So he did, he did Good to Great, and he did Great by Choice. And there were three factors for the Great by Choice um, companies that would essentially, in a 20-year time span, in the same vertical as their competitors, were 10xing the, their competitors' performance, right? So when they examined those companies, um, and that 20 years is a pretty good span to examine, um, it, they weren't the most innovative, they weren't the most dynamic, the sexiest companies. And the term that Jim Collins used in the book that these people implemented was called the 20 mile march. And it was based on the classic race to the South Pole for the first person to get to the South Pole. I think it was Arnmanson, which was like a Swiss guy, I believe, and then an English guy. Um, and I can't remember his name, but he didn't make it. So, so they're racing for the North Pole. One guy's strategy was, I'm going to get when the getting's good. If the weather's nice, I'm going all out. If it's crappy, I'll stay in my tent that day. So sort of this surge and you know, kind of like erratic pace where Arminson was like, it was 20-mile march. I'm going 20 miles every day, no matter what the weather is. Like if it's great outside, I'll just hold a little bit back, right? If it sucks, I'm still going to suck it up and get my 20 miles in. Those were the companies that were most successful. So I think when I look at it through that lens, what makes a really good entrepreneur is the willingness to do those small, boring, repeatable actions every day to be successful. That's it. And so many of us get bored. And so many of us, like, I could have run into this roadblock in 98, Vinny, and you get this because I'm sure you're talking to entrepreneurs all the time, and then somehow convince myself that I was, I was, I was in the wrong opportunity vehicle, right? Like, I'm going to go and open this business. Well, guess what? That other business has the same issues as my original business. I never fixed myself or my business. I just opened another business and had the same problems. And you see entrepreneurs do that. It's like, well, it must be this. It must be that. It's like, eventually you got to just like flip that mirror around and say, listen, dude, like there's some things I have to fix, right? To move forward. So anyway, yeah, long answer, but <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack, man. There really is. As you know, it's the 30 years of screwing it up and fixing it, but but they're important. And I think to hear that, like doing the boring work, I've got a good buddy in the industry who always says, do the boring work, do the boring work, but he's hundred percent right. To me, it's the 20 mile march. It's like, get up every day. Some days are going to suck. Some days are COVID related. You're going to, you're going to hate it, your life. You know, you know, it's going to be okay long-term, but you're going to have to embrace the suck that is today. You're going to have to get your shit done. Right. And so great. Um, if the, if you're really good also, if times are amazing, do you want to overextend yourself and open 10 gyms because you've had a three-month run at it? Probably not. That takes discipline as well. Also, the part of the 20-mile march, right? So calculated, somewhat stoic, right? Like keep your emotions, that short-term emotion out of it and just start plugging away. Now, you, you came up with a, with a new, new, I guess, business model, new way of looking at your trainers underneath you. And you... You only lost two trainers at that time. So once you actually started looking at, okay, I need a new kind of trainer because I'm going to teach them these things to go forward with it. What was that conversation looking like talking to the other trainers? Hey, this is a new way of doing business. Did you hire new trainers and then kind of related the old trainers? Or what, what was that process looking like? Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, we knew we were going to go here. And so I'm, I'm a firm believer in just ripping off the Band-Aid instead of slow pulling it off. So for us, it was like, look, we're already, you know, our revenues are already way down. We had lost two more coaches after that for culture issues as well. Like we had a married trainer that's having an affair with an unmarried, I don't know, whatever, trainers, you know, whatever. Don't put attractive people in small spaces together. <laughs> Rule number one, I'm just teasing. But it happens. 
So that obviously I didn't have any policies around that because they weren't even employees. So that that's never going to work out. They left. Right. So I ended up with like three folks left. And I basically said, here's what we're going to. And two of them were relatively new. So for them, it was the opportunity to scoop up a lot of customers. I didn't lose everyone, right? All of my customers to these guys. Some just took a break. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to throw people off their exercise routine when it's something that they know they need it. But you know, it's, it's the first thing to go at times, right? So we just, some people just got disconnected. I was able to reach out to them, get them back. And the coaches I had left were relatively, like I said, they were a little bit underserved and, and their, uh, their hours were, were not that busy yet. So for them, they were all, they were all over it. And then just kept hiring based on that. It changed everything though. It changed our hiring procedures. It changed the type of person that we're looking for. You know, now we say hire the right athlete, teach the skill. It's like, I don't need a, again, I don't need a ninja trainer. As a matter of fact, that's sometimes hard to untrain some of those things to train what we do, right? So for us, it's better if we hire somebody who looks the part, they're friendly, they're fun to be around, they can kind of bartend since you're working with six people, they can bounce around, right? They've got that skill set. And then we handle all the technical stuff for them so they don't even have to mess with it. Just makes it much easier to scale. So like any of the, um, the certifications, anything like that, you guys kind of guide them where to go and take the classes? Yeah, and I'm on the board for like ACE and all these other certification companies, and so we get really good discounts, and we have great partnerships with a lot of companies that, that offer that. So, sure, we send them there. And then we have an in-house certification as well, and they have to take, they, they do all the education. You know, we have an online platform, they do the education, there's testing mechanisms and everything. So we do an in-house, and then there's a national certification as well, and we have a couple of vendors in that space. Now, you're, you're back on track, you're building the business, you got a new model. How long did it, did it take for the idea of, hey, you know what, I have a really good thing going here. I can allow other people the opportunity to franchise this product. When, when did that idea start coming about? I would say we were eight years post screw up, right? Hiccup, if you will. Um, and everyone says, I mean, you must have had this plan all along. It's like, you know, I did not. So when we clawed our way back with a more systematic approach, we immediately saw a bump in our business. So we expanded our space and you know, now we were doing a ridiculously high revenue. So we were at one of the highest revenue per square foot facilities in the country, right? Well, that puts us on the radar for speaking engagements and things like that. So I'm doing a lot of consulting now. I'm doing a lot of speaking engagements. This is at that time. This is probably three to four years after our comeback. Um, and then people start wanting to buy part and parcel. Like, hey, can we buy your sales system? Or can, we, can you write the workouts for our club? Because we were doing digitally driven workouts already. And you know, so we were sort of piecemealing things together for consulting gigs. And eventually I was like, you know what? I mean, why don't we just build an online platform put everything on there and if somebody wants to buy it we just sell it as a turnkey package and we have an upfront fee to get them trained up based on their particular model and what they're doing and then we just power it and they just pay us monthly and we just update the content right so they're paying for the IP and that became that's like franchise light because again we flew behind their banner so it wasn't alloy on the front door but that became our licensing business and we took that to 2300 clubs worldwide I mean everywhere from Tasmania to Dubai and India and Cyprus and I mean, all over the world, really, which is really cool. Albania, I mean, just all these cool places where it's interesting to see the same concepts work as long as they're in the right, like, area of their market, right? Like, again, an affluent area. Australia, New Zealand, I mean, we launched those for some other big brands. And then we built white-labeled things eventually, right? But for Anytime Fitness and for Gold's Gym, put me on their boards, and, I mean, we were off and running, which is awesome. So that gave us a nice peek under the covers of franchising as well from a from a scaling standpoint, like how do you implement something and roll it out, right, in mass? 
But I would say um, none of these ideas were mine except for moving and franchising. And when I say that, meaning I had literally had to have a gold ship owner come into our facility when we were doing really well and doing I was doing all that consulting and we were selling everything and just said, listen, can you take your business model and teach us how to do the same thing inside of our gym, like a business within our business? Now, we weren't going to be that third-party company that hired the trainers and did I wasn't interested in that. It was more like, I'll teach you to fish, right? We're not going to fish on your behalf, but I'll teach you to fish. And so uh, it went really well. And he was a very influential gold gym owner. So we got more traction there. And then I'm going to their national conference and doing talks for their regional groups. And of course, that's just marketing, right? It's like, it's education. But like, by the way, if you want more info, we're in the booth over here. And that's the way we built the whole thing, even worldwide. And so, but I never had any plans to do it. Like literally, it took somebody walking in saying like, can you give this to me? And me being like, huh, that's an interesting idea. You know, so I would love to say it was all part of the master plan, but it really wasn't. <laughs> it was just fortuitous. Well, so the the licensee, you're giving all the stuff you had and then you're allowing them to kind of take it and run with it. Yet I would right. think with the franchise, you have to kind of maintain it and make sure that they're giving the same level of quality that you provide. hundred percent, a hundred percent. And that's what we saw with licensing. Like, if you were a potential customer of licensing, you might say to me, well, this sounds great, Rick, but I want to go see a club near me that's running Alloy. Well, if you own a CrossFit, your application of Alloy is going to be drastically different than what it's going to look like inside of a Gold's Gym or an Anytime Fitness or a big tennis center that's got a pool. I mean, all those are different environments. So we were doing four or five layers of services and parts and pieces of them in a consultative, you know, consultative way. We would put them together and then we would deploy them, right, and then power them. And that was for each brand that we worked with. So it looked vastly different. So to say now we have what you're just basically describing as control, and that's control for our benefit and for our franchisees, is to say no. Here's the software. Here's the app. Here's the colors. This is what goes on that wall. This is what goes. It's all just in a turnkey package. So. Ultimately, control is the big difference, and you you hit the nail on the head 100%. And that's again, that's a good thing for everyone. And how, what I mean, what um, checks and balances do you put in place to make sure that the the customer got the the same level? I mean, how did you put that control in place? Yeah, it's really um, it's everything from like the business metrics, right? So if you looked at like we have key performance indicators. So imagine we have a dashboard built corporately and then each location has their own dashboard but they're all speaking to ours right so it's like we're all essentially we're all using the same scoreboard put it that way so everyone's shooting for the same you know chasing the same metrics so if we just took retention as an example and that's one of the, the things that we claim is we have a 97 percent month over month retention rate which is like 15 percent higher than an industry average so we keep people forever right well if that number is lower than it should be that tells us what we then need to learn you know, we can, we can go downstream and say, okay, these are the things that we need to be working on that affect retention that we know. So are you doing this, 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 and that? So the numbers give us quality control and then just field agents alone, just getting out and putting eyeballs on places and making sure they're clean and that the staff's up to spec and people are wearing what they're supposed to. Um, and a lot of that, it's, it's, it's not as difficult in this day and age to measure those things because, you know, we give them uh, social media assets, but we also are asking them to post on their own organically and giving them a schedule because you know their community wants to see the local faces in their gym not just the stuff from corporate right and so it's not too difficult to figure out who's doing what based on just the amount of exposure that everyone has to the back end of our business it's like we're all posting our daily lives on social media so it's pretty easy to keep up with them but the structures in place are weekly meetings 
to the KPIs, right, for each individual operator in each club. Um, and then additionally, um, you know, again, field visits to just to double check them, make sure people are up to speed. And a lot of it is, as you know, we sit down with them and there's an agenda in these meetings. And it's like, okay, these are things we need to work on. Here's some new initiatives that we have coming. But then also, how can we help, right? So it's not just us, big brother, coming over the top saying, oh, you need to fix all these things. It's also like, what do you need from us? Because as much as we've got a airtight package put together, we're going to learn a lot from franchisees over time as well. And then, I mean, how um, how are you staying up to date with, because I know you're on a lot of different boards and you probably have a lot of people that are finding out new workout routines, new way of how the body works. Something, I, I had a, um, a trainer on here a while back, but it's a, a cyborg. He does um, MMA training mm -hmm. for training, yep. whatever. And from Brazil, he was talking about the difference of trainers in Brazil compared to trainers in the United States and how much training actually goes into it. One of the things that, I mean, I, I feel like I work out a, a, a decent amount, a good amount, and right. one thing that blew my mind when he told me about it was the idea of static stretching compared to active stretching and the, the positivity of that kind of thing and how you'll see some trainers teaching static stretching when they're doing heavy lifting and how that you should do active and things like that. So, and it seems like a lot of the trainers I've talked to, it was just a kind of foregone conclusion. So how does your company, especially being so global, stay up to date with the new ways of, of fitness? We're really fortunate. So one of the speaking circuits that I've been part of for the last few years, it basically features the top strength conditioning coaches in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to know the best way to train your core on this speaking circuit is the foremost spinal expert in the world, right? Oh, wow. Tweed coat, brushy mustache. And he's going to stand up there and tell you how many newtons of pressure it takes to break a spine in his lab and what that means to, as to whether or not you should have athletes or general pop clients doing full sit-ups, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, no, right? So like crunches and sit-ups, spinal flexion of any kind, bad. I don't even care if you do jiu-jitsu, right? It's just not good. Even if you do it in your sport, shouldn't be training your core that way. So, you know, and same thing with uh, dynamic warm-up. Like if you watched our clients warm up, now mind you, we're targeting a, a higher income level, which puts us in an age bracket that's like 45, 65, right? Mm -hmm. So not necessarily like a young athletic you know, crowd, but our warm-up looks a lot like what, you know, the Chargers would do as an example before a football game, right? Yeah. Knee hugs and high kicks. And there's things that, that are make you more athletic because we all move just like we do in athletics. We're just slower and we don't use as much load and we're, you know, again, not as much range of motion, but like, you know, a heavy deadlift is just your grandmother picking up a laundry basket again at the end of the day. Right. So Again, we're just thankful enough to be, I'm on a speaking circuit where I'm the business guy. And that's how I've been pigeonholed and that's great. But everyone else on the circuit, strength coaches of the Yankees, strength coaches of the Red Sox, strength coach of the professional football team, University of Texas strength coach. Like, and again, some of the greatest like movement scientists and, uh, and just general scientists in the world. So it's like, it just makes it easy for us to keep up with what's going on. I'll, I'll finish it up with, with this question. What do you think... And I, you know, I know you, you have a database all over the, all over the world. What do you think most new trainers uh, do wrong when they're starting their business? I think they, well, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where do I start? No, I'm just kidding. It makes it sound like everyone's bad, but I mean, I've made every mistake. Maybe that's why, maybe that's why I'm biased. Um, I would say that the hardest thing for trainers to do is to like, you you know, everybody has a passion, right? But a lot of times that passion is manifested in a methodology or a tool. Like I'm a kettlebell guru. I'm going to figure out how 
to take this thing that I love, this tool or this passion, and take it to the masses, right? So I open a kettlebell gym. Or I love CrossFit, I'm a firefighter, I love doing CrossFits where all my bros hang out. I'm gonna open a CrossFit and take that to the general public. That's not how a business is supposed to work, right? So I would say that your passion should be in helping people, period. And then you should choose the most effective vehicle or machine, if you will, that can serve that purpose. So my passions are not self-serving, right? The business isn't there to serve me financially, yes, but not to serve my neurosis or my likes and dislikes. The market doesn't care about any of that. They don't care how much passion you have for kettlebells, right? They come in and they wanna look, move better, look better. Let's keep it simple, right? Okay, move better, look better. Okay, great. Where's my market? Okay, so we charge for personal training. So it's 45 to 65. Okay, so does a 50 year old guy need to do kettlebell snatches because I like to do them? No, and that's so hard for coaches to disassociate their likes and dislikes from what's the best machine built to fill a gap in a market and solve a problem, which is what a business does, right? So that's that's where I see the biggest mistake is that coaches just get they get tied to TRX or you know a single modality or a tool or whatever, and they go deep into that, and then they just try to back their way into figuring out how to take that thing that they love to market, as opposed to the raging passion being about helping people and then going and finding the best machine or tools to do that. So if you look at us as an example, personal training, that's on our front doors. What does that mean? Accountability and specificity to you. I mean, you know, again, 30 years ago, it wasn't kettlebells and it was all machines, right? Then it was something else and it was something else. It's like the science is going to evolve, but it doesn't change the brand promise. That's why I'd be careful not to open a gym or as a personal trainer, start a business that's based on a thing or a, you know, a te- you know again, a, a technology or a specific type of training. Because you know what? It's going to evolve. And what happens when that thing goes out of style or they prove better science comes along? It's like you got to pivot your whole business, right? So, yeah, and then sometimes you're out there and you just think your baby's cuter than, than, you know, than it is. It's like, you know, you've learned some funky fascial, like, you know, stuff. And a guy comes in, he's like, I want to lose some weight. And he just wants to get hot and sweaty, right? And you're putting him through this, like, it almost looks like rehab. And you're just going to lose him emotionally. So that's the biggest mistake. Does that make sense? No, no, I think it totally makes sense. And I think it, it's for even people that aren't in the fitness world, just entrepreneurs. If you have a product, just because you have a product that you like, but if there's not a need for the product in the market out there, no one's going to buy nobody your product. Nobody cares. So, it's a terrible, it's a hard truth, but nobody cares. Like, you know, just, just build the machine. First, identify a gap in the market, a problem that need, people need solved, right? Jobs to be done is the way that, you know, the Harvard course that I took. As they said, what is the job of my product or service? Okay, great. Now build the machine that can do that job better, more efficiently, faster, cheaper, whatever your market advantage is, right, than anyone else. And it, it doesn't matter. The tools and all those things should, should not matter to you personally. Your real passion should be to the business, which is a breathing, living entity in and of itself. Doesn't care about you. You know, market doesn't care about you and your passions. It's like, and it's kind of flies in the face of like what most people think entrepreneurship is, but it's really about just getting up and doing boring hard work every day <laughs> and, and, and getting yourself personally sorted so that you can do the things I'm talking about. You can just have a passion for helping people, but it doesn't have to be about kettlebells or Olympic lifting or deadlift, max deadlifts or whatever your thing is, right? And we see that so often. So I'd say for new trainers, try to think about who your ideal customer is. Do you have the best vehicle or machine built to get that customer to their goal, the usual goals? And then try your hardest to disassociate from anything that doesn't fit into that box. And if you do that, you can be successful.
Now, let's say there's a, a trainer right now that's really excited. They, they listen to the whole podcast, and they're just like, oh, my gosh, I want to basically be a part of Aloe. I want to start my franchise. Or if there's someone that wants to take a class and be part of it or someone, maybe they're a business owner, and they're going through a struggle right now. They, they need to work out that frustration. What's the best yes. way of them uh, finding Alloy and finding more information about Alloy? Yeah, we have a consumer site and a franchise site. I would just start at the franchise site, um, alloyfranchise.com. If you reach out to us through that, I'll get that message. So if it's just a personal question for me, feel free to lob it out there on there as well. And then we do a podcast as well. It's very niche. It's called the Alloy Personal Training Business Podcast. But you you can find it from our um, you know from our website from alloyfranchise.com. But if you're interested in the the fitness business and the specifics of the personal training business, um, we put one out a week you know on that so not as much um you know entrepreneurship is just really deep dive that but it's if you're in the business you'll enjoy it perfect well thank you again rick for being here thank you everyone listening hopefully you got some some great nuggets right there uh please subscribe please share and go find uh Allo. maybe start your own franchise <laughs> Heck yeah <laughs> thanks Benny. i appreciate it Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.